is a, a book from the Old Testament. And the theme of this sermon series, kind of the, the tagline, the thing we're going to be honing in on, is uh, the phrase, come, let us rebuild, which is in Nehemiah 2.17, in case you're wondering. Come, let us rebuild. That's going to be the theme of this sermon series for us. And that resonates, I think, with where we are as a church, doesn't it? Think, <laughs> yes. Uh, that after moving from Stratford over here, after a year and a half of not meeting, we're trying to figure out uh, what does it mean for us to do church together? Who is a part of this church, right? That really what we're doing is rebuilding our sense of identity as a body of believers. And that in doing that, we're not doing anything new. This is a part of what God has been about in the world throughout all of human history. Is that all of human history really can be seen as God's building project out in the world. And so to kind of help uh, set us in the context of Nehemiah and this storyline of scripture, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the whiteboard, okay? And we're just gonna talk a little bit about, to, to get started, uh, the context of, of Nehemiah in this overall picture of God's plan. You guys know I love the whiteboard. And look, can we just be excited that we have a whiteboard and not those floppy easels? Yes. Yes, if you haven't been here before, this is a vast improvement over where we've been. So, uh, so one of the ways you can think about, the, we're gonna sum up uh, the entire Bible right now, okay? So one of the ways you can think about the entire kind of narrative framework of the Bible is that it is about a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. That's one way of understanding the entire narrative framework of the Bible, okay? And when we start, think about, think about this with me, when we start in Genesis, right, at the very beginning of scripture, we have a holy people, right? God's kind of created this whole earth and he's given Adam and Eve dominion over all of creation. There are people that are set apart to God and they're worshiping a holy God, but what's missing in Genesis? Okay, we'll try that again, okay? What's missing in Genesis? The holy city, that's right. Okay, so what we see then at the end of the Bible in Revelation, so we're going from the first book to the last book. This is Revelation 21, one through four. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So the picture here, kind of at the end of time, right? At the end of scripture is this this holy city. And so the whole arc of scripture then is this story of how God is gonna make a holy people and what it's gonna look like for them to worship a holy God in a holy city. That was his plan all the way back in Genesis. If we flip back, so now we're going back to the first book, right? Back to Genesis. This is what God says in Genesis 1.28. Some people call this the cultural mandate. Okay, that's the phrase for this verse. It says, and this is, toward, this is to Adam and Eve. This is God's command to Adam and Eve. It says, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So what God is saying to Adam and Eve here, right in Genesis 1.28, he's saying, I have given you all of this raw material in creation. And what I want you to do as my representatives on earth, as a king and as a queen, I want you to take all of that raw material and I want you to use it. And I want you to build things that are beautiful and that honor me and that, and that glorify me, but that also celebrate this world that I've created. It's an encouragement to go out and to, to make art and culture and to build cities, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth. You see, so that's, that's this arc again. It starts back here in Genesis. God gives the command to Adam and Eve and it's gonna be fulfilled in Revelation at the end of time. That's the story arc of scripture. But what, but what happened? Right, sin interrupted this story. You know that, that's the very next, well, two chapters later in Genesis, in Genesis 3. And God's people become unholy. The result of that is that their worship of God becomes twisted. That in fact, what they start doing is worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And that what we see is the cities that they build are cities that are full of injustice and unrighteousness. And so it looks like the plan of God has been thwarted. But what we see all throughout scripture is God's faithfulness to keeping his promises. That God is committed to this story of a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. And so he said, I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna bring these things to pass despite the sin in the world, the sin in our own hearts. And so we get this story, right, of God calling this man Abram. And he says, hey, Abram, through you, I'm gonna bless the entire world. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He changes his name to Abraham. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, right? And Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. That becomes the nation of Israel. Make a big leap forward, right? So eventually, this, this family becomes a whole nation. And they fill up this nation of Israel. And there's kind of this high point, okay, in the story of the nation of Israel with this king named Solomon. So Solomon is king in the city of Jerusalem, and it's this holy city, right? There's the temple in the city of Jerusalem, and the people are worshiping God. And so it looks like we've got this holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. We're like, oh, we're here. And the people of Israel thought, we did it, we made it. The promise is fulfilled. But here's the thing, it wasn't. There was actually a dark underbelly to what was happening in Israel at the time that while the worship of God looked good, that the hearts of God's people were far away from him. And the way they knew that is that the city was full of injustice and unrighteousness. That Solomon his, himself, the king himself, who was supposed to be leading the people toward God, had had his heart turned away from God and was worshiping all of these idols. It's bad news. And this city that was supposed to be a representation of the glory of God out for the world had become turned in on itself, had become insular. And so what happens is God starts to send prophets to his people and he starts to warn them. And he says, this is not good. And if you continue to live in a way that disregards your identity as a holy people, if you continue to disregard my identity as a holy God, if you continue to perpetuate injustice and unrighteousness in your city, there's gonna be judgment that comes upon you. And the people didn't listen. And so that's what happens, right? The kingdom splits. There's a civil war and there's now a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and the prophets keep coming and keep warning, keep warning, keep warning. But eventually what happens is that the people refuse to listen and so they're taken into exile. 
So in 586 BC, I think it is, the Assyrians, which is this brutal empire, comes and conquers the northern kingdom. And the way the Assyrians did empire is they would just remove, they would like uproot a people and they would just scatter them across the rest of the empire. That's a great way to ensure there's no rebellion is it takes away a people's sense of identity. They don't even know who they are anymore. That's the northern kingdom. Well, there's still a southern kingdom, right? And so the southern kingdom, they thought, well, no, well, we've got it made. But it wasn't true. They were just as corrupt as the northern kingdom. And so in 722, this, this empire, this nation, Babylon, comes against the southern kingdom of, Jude, of Judah and besieges and captures Jerusalem. And God's holy city is torn apart brick by brick. The temple of God, not only was it emptied of everything inside of it, but it was, it was totally leveled. The walls of Jerusalem that protected that city torn down. And the, the kind of the cream of the crop, the nobility of the people, were exiled. They were taken away from their land and they were made to serve foreign kings. So there's this really dark place then in the narrative. There's no holy city anymore. The worship of a holy God has been totally disrupted. And it looks like the people of God are losing their identity. But what the prophets had said, while, while they talked about the judgment of God that would come against the people and their sin, what God also promised is that there would be a remnant. What God said, even through the prophets, is, hey, I am more committed to this than you will ever be. And so I have a plan to bring these things to pass. And so what we see in the book of Nehemiah that we're gonna be studying is what it looks like when God is moving and making good on these promises. Because what happened after the people were taken into exile like 70 years later, more or less, right? is that there's a new king, and his name is Darius. And Darius was kind of like an enlightened monarch of the time, as much as you could be. And, and what he wanted to do is he wanted the favor of as many gods as possible. And so what he told the Jews was, go ahead, go back to Jerusalem, and I'll pay for you to rebuild the temple. Oh. So we're seeing some progress toward these promises. The temple is being rebuilt despite a lot of opposition. And then another, another wave of exiles go ba goes back under this guy named Ezra. And so they're rebuilding the city. They're rebuilding, rebuilding the people, rebuilding uh, the temple. He's starting right worship of God in the city where the temple is. And then we get the book of Nehemiah. And so we're zoomed in here, just right to this, well, we'll do it like this, right? This is the arc of what is going to happen. This is the arc of what did happen. And right here with Nehemiah, we're in this, this small space right here. And what's happening right here is that Nehemiah has said, I'm gonna be a part of, of rebuilding this city. But God has said to me, Nehemiah, I'm gonna use you to be a part of bringing about this holy city. And in doing so, what happens is that Nehemiah becomes part of a story that's much larger than himself. That he gets swept up into a story that's much larger than himself. He moves from kind of like this day-to-day -day experience of history into this overall arc of redemptive history and God's work in the world. And that story is so important for us because it helps us understand our identity. That's one of the things stories do, right, is they give us uh, a way of, of leaning into, of understanding what could our stories be in this world. There's this author, his name is James K.A. Smith, and he, he says this about our stories. He's talking about movies, and he's talking about the call that we see in movies, and it says, you know, it might be an aspirational call to justice in the Mr. Smith who goes to Washington 
or crusading for the same in the character of Atticus Finch. It might be black empowerment in Black Panther or female empowerment in Wonder Woman. It might be journalistic communities chasing the truth in Spotlight or The Post. In response to any of these, a, y- a young person or any person might say, that's me. I men spend a life following their lead. Our fictions often hold out better characters to emulate. And that what we see in Nehemiah is not a a fictional story that we can emulate. What we see is an example of a real person who was bought into this arc of redemptive history and that because of that, it had real, real implications for the way he lived his life. And so in preaching through the book of Nehemiah, what we're being invited to is to find our story in the overall story of God. And that's gonna be our main point of the sermon this morning, okay? Is that Nehemiah was a part of something bigger than himself. So I'm gonna ask Beth to come up and Beth is gonna read our scripture for us. Okay, this is Nehemiah 1, verses one through four. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judea. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Thanks, Beth. You guys, uh, pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that uh, that you are at work. God, we uh, we need to be encouraged in that reality. So pray that you would do that, that you'd strengthen us, um, and that you would open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning out of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we have in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 1.1, right? The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Hakali, Hakaliah, whatever it is. We're gonna get to encounter a lot of those fun Old Testament names in the course of reading this book. So just, just be ready for it. Uh, what we see is that there's this guy, Nehemiah, okay? And Nehemiah is, we'll find out a little bit later, spoiler alert, he's a cupbearer to the king of Persia. So that means that he's responsible for tasting the king's wine and making sure it hasn't been poisoned cool. Uh, but it, it really is a job like a, of a lot of privilege and prestige. And Nehemiah is uh, kind of a compilation of some of his own, like almost like his personal journal. And there's some other documents kind of layered in here, and we'll talk about those as we get to them. But this is really kind of a first-person perspective on what's happening in Jerusalem and his, his journey in rebuilding the walls. And so he tells us that he was in, uh, in, in Susa, the capital, right, of, of Persia. That's kind of, that's kind of where he is and where he is when this story starts off. So he's kind of giving us the setting. And what he tells us is that his brother has come back from visiting Jerusalem. We don't really know why he was there. There are all kinds of different ideas about why. It's not really important. The, the point is his brother had been uh, to visit Jerusalem and he's come back. And Nehemiah asks him, how's it going, right? 
because there's no, there's no 24-hour news cycle. There's, there are no pictures, live pictures, live updates of what's happening in Jerusalem as Nehemiah is living in Susa. It's, they're separated by hundreds of miles. And so Nehemiah really has no idea what is going on in the city. What he knows, probably to some extent, is that there have been some exiles who have returned, right? He knows the temple has been rebuilt. He knows the people have been uh, trying to kind of rebuild the fortifications of the city, have been trying to be faithful to God. And so he's probably expecting good news. But the news that he gets is not good from his brother. This is what his brother says. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, and it's probably talking about the people who have come back, right? They're in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And this is, this is, the, this is the Twitter version, likely, of a much larger report. So they, they probably gave him a ton of details about what they saw in Jerusalem, and this is like the headline of their report. That's not good. What, what his brother is telling him is that Jerusalem, you know, the people had been trying to rebuild the walls, and as they were doing that, that they encountered great opposition, people actually came and tore those walls down. And so what was true then about these people is that they're living there 100% vulnerable. If you think about kind of the ancient world, right? Uh, if, if there were no walls, there was no protection from any kind of enemy. Any enemy could come at any time and, and r- just run you over, run the city over. And they'd be back in the same place that they started 100 a, a years before. And so there's a vulnerability there that is, that's terrifying. And in front of their enemies, they're being mocked and shamed relentlessly. We see that a little bit later in the narrative. But what we also find out is that the people are living in the same patterns of unfaithfulness to God as got them in this spot in the first place. And so Nehemiah, he is devastated by this news. He's rocked by it. He goes into this place of deep mourning, of profound sadness. It's like all the color has been drained from his world. It's heart-rending. Why is that? Well, it's because Nehemiah identifies himself with this arc of redemptive history. That for Nehemiah, this arc of redemptive history, that story is his story. He's bought into it. This is where his hope is. This is where his identity is. And he's being confronted with this reality that things are not going the way he thought they were going to go. And it looks like in some ways this, this arc has been disrupted. It's terrifying. And it makes him so sad. And what's true for Nehemiah is true for us is bad news doesn't soften our hearts, right? The way that we react to bad news shows how soft our hearts are. And so Nehemiah's reaction here, that he sat down and wept and mourned for days as he continued fasting and praying before God, what it shows us is that Nehemiah had a, a soft heart toward the things and the people of God because he was bought into this story. Nehemiah was in a really comfortable place, as comfortable a place as you could be in in the ancient world. Cup bear to the king. I mean, think about that kind of rags to riches story, right? 
His family had been taken into exile, and here he, here he is, two or three generations later, risen to this place of great prominence. He has every excuse not to identify with the people who are struggling in Jerusalem. But because he's bought into this story, he's bought in toward, toward and to the people of God. It's moved him, it's grieved him deeply. That Nehemiah is bought into a story that's bigger than himself. And what I want us to see in this is that we are called to be part of a story that's bigger than ourselves. That what's true for Nehemiah is true for us. And in some ways, in our, in our kind of modern conception of the world, it's almost impossible to think of ourselves as a part of something bigger than ourselves. Because what we've done in kind of creating our modern world is we have, we have exiled and kind of walled ourselves off from any forces that are bigger than us. That we've kind of put God in this box of like being distant and if he exists, being disconnected from our day-to-day lives. And what that's meant is that we have to go about finding our own purpose. And that's, just, that's not just a thing that people who don't believe in God do. That's a thing that people who believe in God do. It's a thing that we do within the church, right? Uh, maybe you've heard people talk about uh, the God-shaped hole in our hearts. Okay? Uh, that is just another way of indulging this same tendency to keep God far away from us. Because what it does is it reduces God to just a puzzle piece that fits into our own hearts, into our own stories. That the whole story of God is just about making us whole and happy. Now, I'm not saying God does not care about those things. But what I am saying is that if we reduce God to that, we're missing the bigger story. We've made God just a pawn in our own plans to get our own happiness. That God becomes a way of getting to our own goals, getting to our own career goals, right? God, if you could just give me the job that I want that's gonna finally make me happy and successful and feel like I have purpose in my day-to-day life. God, if you could just get on board with my plan for my life, then this would all be okay. God, if you could just get on board with the plan that I have for my kids, then this would all be okay. God, if you could just get on board with my plan to keep pain out of my life, man, then then I would finally be happy. And God is calling us guys, into something that is so much bigger than that. And again, I don't want to say that God doesn't care about those things because that's not true. But if we get lost in trying to drag God into making all of our plans happen, what we're missing is the fact that God has called us to be part of this great arc of redemptive history that's so much bigger than us. I, I put these puzzle pieces on your seat. Did you, maybe you sat on it or you've got one in your hand. Okay, I want you to look at the puzzle piece with me for a second. Uh, I wish I had brought one up here, but I didn't. Uh, So I want you to look at that puzzle piece, right? I want you to think about that as yourself. If you think about God as the puzzle piece, that's what we're saying, you're missing the picture. Why don't you think about yourself as the puzzle piece? And if you're thinking about yourself as the puzzle piece, right, and you can study all you want, like the picture on it, you know, you can, not the cardboard side, the picture side, right? You can study all you want the picture side of that, And you can try as much as you want, try as hard as you can to imagine what is the story that you've been created to fit into. What's what's the story of your life looking at that one picture on the puzzle piece? But no matter how much you, no matter how good your imagination is, you are not gonna get to the overall picture just by looking at your small part of it on your puzzle piece, right? 
that if all the tools that you have to figure out what the bigger story is is just what you have in your life right in front of you, you'll never be able to plug into something that's greater than you. That you, as a person, me as a person, our lives do not make sense on their own. They don't. There's no way for us to make sense of who we are and who we're called to be to find the joy and love and completeness and wholeness, the flourishing that we're looking for in our lives, apart from being connected to this bigger, this thing that's bigger than us. We've gotta be looking outside of ourselves for the answer to that question. If the only question you're asking is how do I live my most authentic life, I'm promising you, you're never gonna be able to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You're never gonna be able to be a part of what you were created for. It's only in finding ourselves as a part of this bigger story that we're able to see Uh, why and how God created us to live. And it's into this story of a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city. Okay, but here's the problem. Um, We're not holy on our own, right? That if God has created us for holiness and for wholeness, that what we see in ourselves is that we're unable to live up to this. And it's true in that story we just told at the beginning, right, of, of the people of God, is that after the fall, after sin enters the world, that we are incapable of, of living up to the holiness of God on our own, that our worship is always warped, that our cities are always full of injustice because we are full of uh, injustice and unrighteousness. And so to look at this puzzle piece and realize, okay, I fit into this larger story of a holy people worshiping a holy God in a holy city, but if if that's all we have, uh, we're pretty hopeless. Because there's no way for us to make ourselves holy. And you don't even need to be a religious person to acknowledge that. If you think about what it means to be a person in the world who's trying to live up to the standards that are around us, what we know is that we all always fall short of those things. So that's the bad news, okay? But there is good news. Spoiler alert. That what we have here in Nehemiah is a part of God's plan to get us where? To get to this holy city, right? And the biggest stop along the way there, guys, is the cross. And as we study and read through the book of Nehemiah, that's something that we can't ignore and that we're not gonna ignore. That everything that we read is gonna be filtered through this lens of, yeah, and what does this mean for us in, in and because of our relationship with Christ? And here's what's true for you if you were in Christ because of what Jesus has done for you, right? Is that what Jesus has done and what he's come to do is what we cannot do for ourselves. He has come to make us holy. That that's the good news of the gospel is that you are not able to do that for yourself, but Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, he has given you holiness, he has made you holy, and now this is true about you. It's true, it's true that it's true that it's true that it's true. You are a holy people. As you sit here this morning, you sit amongst a holy people. And a holy people who have been called to worship a holy God. I think about Jesus when he's talking with the woman at the well. And she's like, so where are we gonna go to worship? Should we go to the temple? Should, you know, we have a different temple we're gonna worship at. And we're, we can ask, well, how are we supposed to worship if we don't have a temple? Okay, what Jesus has said is, no, there's a time coming and that time is now when we're gonna worship God in spirit and in truth. 
that you here as a holy people have been called and you have the opportunity to worship God in a way that is so much more complete than the Jews ever did at the temple. Because we get to do that through the access that Jesus has opened to the throne room of God. That we're invited to worship him in spirit and in truth. And what Jesus tells us over and over again, he says, the holy city is coming. It's coming, it's coming, I'm coming. And Jesus says, I'm gonna bring it. And in the meantime, in the meantime, I'm asking you uh, to wait. And it's hard, but I'm asking you to wait. And I'm asking you to work for it to see it and to move toward it. And I'm asking you to worship. That our Jesus has called us into this same story of anticipating the holy city that's coming, working for it, waiting for it, and worshiping as we wait. Okay, so what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us as we live out of this identity of being a part of a people and a story that's bigger than ourselves? Friends, you are part of a people. You are not in this alone. And if you, can you just look around the room for a second? If you're in the front, you can turn around and see the other people, okay? These people who are sitting around you, guys, this is it, okay? These are the people that we're doing this with. You are, you're a part of a people. The reality of being a part of this, this arc of redemptive history is always gonna find an expression in, in, a, in a local body of believers. It's true. And you can't find your, you can look at your puzzle piece again, okay? That puzzle piece, you can look at it again. <laughs> it's gotta be connected to other puzzle pieces, right? It's not meant to be alone. That's true for you. You cannot find yourself apart from being a part of a body of believers, apart from being woven into it, a part of belonging to it. And when we talk about that, guys, we're not, we're not just talking about coming to church. Like, we're not talking about showing up to church on Sunday or, like, showing up to events. Events are not belonging. Now, this is important. Okay, this is a part of it, but this, this, isn't, this isn't only what it is. It's bigger than that. The call is that you would weave your life together with the people in this room. Doesn't mean you're not gonna have friends who are outside of this room. Of course you will. But if you don't have anybody in this room that knows you or that you know, you're missing something. You're part of a people, and the call here is that as we think about ourselves and who we are, that we would identify with the people in this room, that we would weave our lives together with them. Some of you, can I just tell you, some of you are new, and you are such an encouragement to me. <laughs> it's such a gift to, to be reminded that there are people who want to come in and be a part of what God is doing here. And if you are wondering if you belong here, can I just tell you, the answer is yes. You belong. If you're wondering, I'm just, I'm telling you now, you belong, okay? It doesn't matter how many weeks you have been here. This is your first week. You belong here. It's true. If you need an invitation to step into belonging with the people around you, 
here it is. You are invited. You're invited to, to call this place your home. You're invited to invite other people, not, not here, I mean you are invited to that, but to invite other people here into your life. You're invited to that. To know people and to get to know people, to join, to identify as a part of belonging here. And maybe you have been around here for a long time and uh, I'm thankful for you. thankful for you. Uh, to build, guys, is to rebuild. To be a part of God's building project is always a part of rebuilding. Rebuilding is always a part of that. And I know there are some things from before COVID that none of us want to ever go back to. None of us want to go back to Stratford. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe We used to meet at Stratford High School, guys. It was, it was an experience, I will tell you. And there are some beautiful parts about it, but I know most of us, I don't think any of us want to go back there. Certainly none of us want to go back to setting up Kid Town every week. Am I right? Can I get an amen for that? Amen. Yes. Okay. Uh, I just want to remind you, though, that building and rebuilding, it's about looking forward to what God is doing and is continuing to do. And yeah, there are parts about Stratford that I never want to go back to. But that was also a beautiful time in the life of this community because God, because God was at work. And it's easy if you've been around church, and this is true, no matter how you are coming into this, into this story, into this morning, right? Is that like Nehemiah, um, there's pain in your story. And that agreeing to be part, saying yes to being part of building or rebuilding the people of God is saying yes to pain coming into your life. Because if you're here this morning and you've been a part of this community for a long time, you know that there are people who are not with us this morning because God has taken them other places. And that's hard. And that's sad. And you're going to ask yourself, do I really want to keep doing this? Do I really want to keep giving my heart away to new people? What if they leave? They might but being a part of, the, of this redemptive arc of history, uh, it always involves pain. Because pain lets us know that we've given our hearts to things that are worth it. And if you're new this morning, or maybe not new this morning, but you feel new here, you came from somewhere. And you left something. And there are all kinds of reasons for doing that but I know that in the leaving, there was pain. That's just a part of what it means to be a human. And there's this question, do I really want to, do I really want to step in again? Do I really want to open myself up to being hurt again? I would encourage you, uh, not that this community is going to be perfect and never hurt, but I want to encourage you that being a part of this redemptive arc of history, that it's the only place that you're going to find yourself. And the, when you experience pain, like Nehemiah experienced pain, it's not always a symptom that shows you that something is wrong. Sometimes it shows you that you're doing something right. That you are living with your full heart into this story that God is writing. Because being part of this narrative is always going to involve pain. 
that we're waiting, that we're waiting for a new Jerusalem, right? And what that, what that waiting means, what it entails is us acknowledging that this city is not the way that God designed it to be. This is not the way that God imagined it. What that means is acknowledging that there's, that there's pain in the world around us, that it's not as it should be, and, and that's hard. And like Nehemiah, guys, there are times where we are living in this storyline and it's easy to wonder because of what's happening here of God, is this actually gonna, is this actually gonna happen? Is this real? That's what Nehemiah is wondering. And we could talk about all the things in our world right now that are making me wonder that. I'm sure there are plenty of things in our world and just in your life that are raising the same questions for you. And guys, pain is, uh, pain is like velocity, okay? It has speed and direction. The pain in your life always has an intensity, right? At different levels, at different times. But it also always has a direction. It's always moving you somewhere. That, that pain can either move you away from God and away from other people, or it can move you toward God and toward other people. And what we see for Nehemiah is that because he's a part of this greater story, because he knows the promises and the reality of this greater story, because he identifies with this story, that what he says is, I'm gonna let my pain not move me away from people and away from God, but I'm gonna let it draw me toward God and toward his people. Okay, so this is us a holy people, worshiping a holy God, waiting and worshiping and working for this holy city. And my question for you this morning, guys, is are you in? Are you in? Are you willing to find, to look at your puzzle piece and say, I'm gonna find who I am as a part of this bigger story? And if you are, I will tell you, the next several weeks, just buckle up, okay? Because God has a lot to tell us about what it looks like to be involved in this plan of building and rebuilding. And it's a, it's a series I'm excited for us to engage in together. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful. Uh, thankful that you have chosen thankful for your faithfulness to your promises, that you are about this plan, Lord, uh, even when we lose our interest in it. Uh, we're thankful that you are committed to us, Jesus, that you are moved by your compassion for us, that you've come to us and invited us into this. And Jesus, thankful that you don't ask us to do this alone, that in being a part of something bigger than ourselves, you give us a people to be a part of. And ask, Lord, that as we worship, that you would draw our hearts and our minds, Lord, our, ima our imagination uh, into this bigger story that you are writing in our world. Amen.